in us. May we soak in that truth that we are utterly dependent on God's mercy and in Christ alone. Found in Jesus' life and what He accomplished for us through His active obedience. An obedience that we could never measure up to. And so we rejoice in that glorious truth. What a wonderful, wonderful song that clearly demonstrates the the gospel truth that that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And uh, on that note, this evening we will be considering yet again this woman, Ruth, who despite her virtue, despite her goodness, despite her willingness to do whatever it took to preserve the life of her and her mother-in-law, she could not on her own secure the very thing that she needed most, and that is redemption. To be redeemed out of her widowhood, out of her destitution, out of her barrenness, out of her alienness from being a Moabite, she needed to be redeemed. She could not accomplish that in and of herself. It was not in her, nor is our salvation in us. So I would ask you this evening to turn with me to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 18. And I would ask you this evening that if you are able to please stand together in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Ruth chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we read, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. And you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? So she answered, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true, I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, 
good. Let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me. For he said to me, Do not go away empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. You may be seated. And let's once again turn together to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, we are humbled this evening by your great mercy that is poured out to us in Christ. Lord, we marvel that we who were considered alien, far off, separated, unclean, heathen, that you would exchange the precious blood of your Son for us. O Lord, your grace is unsearchable. Tonight, as we consider your word, help us to catch just a glimpse of it. Help us to see in this story of your law working out for the good of your people. Let us see how you intend to preserve and protect and care for those that love you and those whom you love. And God, let our hearts be light in the knowledge that we, too, are people whom you love. Help us to understand, Lord, your word. And help us to come away from our time tonight in your word, transformed by it. Brought into greater conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. As we consider this text tonight, one of the things that we are going to see in just a moment is how God's people ultimately act in bold faith, even though the risk may be great. It's likely that most of us know to some extent what it feels like to take a big risk and to fail. Maybe your failures have been small. By comparison, maybe you got turned down when you asked someone to go to a dance with you in high school. Maybe you got laughed at when you told your friends about this great idea that you had for an invention or for a business or something of that nature. Maybe you were flat out told no when you asked your boss for a promotion or for a raise. Or maybe you just really badly botched a, a recipe or a project that you saw on Pinterest. I've had a few of those myself or more accurately, that Lauren has found for me on Pinterest. But all of us have experienced failure at one time or another. And we know how badly it can sting. 
when we come up short, when we fail. We know the feeling of of butterflies in our stomachs and sweaty palms when we're getting ready to step out and to take a risk. And we know the heartbreak, the disappointment, and sometimes the embarrassment that comes when we do fall short. Because of the fear of failure, though, many of us will never take any really significant risks. Most of the risks that we do take or the things that we call risks aren't really risks at all when we think about it. For example... For those of you that are married, most of you probably had a pretty reasonable expectation of what the answer would be before you proposed. Uh, you had had some conversations along those lines, probably before you even went out and bought the ring, gentlemen. Maybe you are a bold soul and you just said, you know what, I'm going for it. I don't even really know whether she likes me or not, but I'm going to ask. No more power to you, but, but most of us probably had a pretty reasonable expectation that the answer would be yes before we even asked. It still may have been nerve-wracking, but the outcome wasn't really in doubt. In fact, I, I believe that most of us never will really take any significant risk in our lives where our health and well-being is actually on the line, where the likelihood of failure far exceeds the likelihood of success. That's a risk. Even if you count what I think is an incredibly foolish thing to do, skydiving. I've heard someone say, why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane? I I subscribe to that philosophy. You will never convince me um, to do such a silly thing. Now, some of you may want to do it. You go right ahead. I will stay on terra firma. But even with skydiving, there's only about a 1 in 50,000 chance of death in skydiving, or that's uh, two one-thousandths of a percent of uh, a chance of risk that you're taking, that your, your jump will result in death. And so there's actually very little risk in skydiving. But what if there was a 75% chance of death? Three out of every four shoots don't open. Wouldn't be a very big business then, right? Not very many people are going to be signing up to go skydiving pull up to the place and there's a sign up that says, we haven't had a death in about 15 minutes. <laughs> not getting on that plane. right? We're, we're not assuming that risk. That would be taking a risk. But in this third chapter of Ruth, what we see is we see this woman actually taking an incredibly huge risk. She's engaging in an action where the chance of failure is far greater than the chance of success, at least by earthly standards. And where the consequences, if failure does occur, the consequences are going to be devastating. Ruth and Naomi have been sustained by the gracious hand of Boaz up until this point. If something is done to disrupt that, if she offends Boaz, if Boaz is somehow offended by her, if, if, if her proposal here is rejected, all that goes out the window. The safety and security that they had, their very lives are put back into jeopardy. And that's perhaps the, the most simple outcome. That, that's perhaps the least bad outcome that could occur. The consequences of failure here would be devastating. However... Just like a hundred-year-old couple conceiving a child. Just like 
God's people escaping the Egyptians through the middle of the Red Sea. Just like God's people experiencing victory over Jericho's impregnable walls, when God enters into the equation, the impossible becomes possible, and risk turns into assurance. Therefore, tonight we will consider three remarkable truths from this passage that should affect the way that we live as followers of Christ. The first truth we will see is that God's people demonstrate godly character. God's people demonstrate godly character. Second, God's people exercise bold faith in the face of risk. God's people exercise bold faith in the face of risk. And number three, God assures redemption for His people through His law. God assures redemption for His people through His law. So our first point tonight, God's people demonstrate godly character. The character of all three of the primary characters leap out at us from these verses in this chapter. As we see the story unfold, we might be tempted to think even that Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz are are simply acting in a way that would be normal for them. This is just a a normal way of life. This is what we might expect if we were to, to peer into a normal Israelite household, to a normal Israelite village in this era. However, we know from the biblical context that that is anything but the case. Their behavior in this chapter is anything but normal for the context of their day. Remember that they are living in the era of the judges. This is a time in which everyone is doing right in their own eyes. So so lest we get kind of transported out of the context by the sweeping language, the, the grand display of grace and mercy that's bestowed here in Ruth, lest we get sidetracked from the context, let's remember this is taking place during the same time period that you've had people like Samson roaming around, preying on women like Ruth. Where you have people like the Benjamites who collectively violate the the entire population of the city, come out in the course of a night to to violate and and murder a concubine. This is not normal behavior. And this is exactly why we need to pause for a moment and take a look at this. This is why the the, the author gives us this. He says, look, here in the midst of, of all that's going on in the context of the judges, here is one story that doesn't conform to the norm. This is one story where these people don't do what's right in their own eyes. Nobody in Israel is demonstrating godly character at this time, and yet here we see in these three characters integrity, nobility, purity, hope preserved. We see incredible godly character portrayed for us. We see this demonstrated first in Naomi. If you remember back to the first chapter, you will remember that that Naomi's undergone a rather incredible transformation from the woman who called herself bitter and empty in the first chapter. She's now full of hope. The fire of her faith has been rekindled. She's seen God working in her and in Ruth's life for their good, for their prospering. God has not forgotten even the least of His children. He's preserved these widows, this foreigner, 
these impoverished women, he has not forgotten them. And so therefore she concocts a scheme here that will fling her and her daughter-in-law into the benevolent arms of the Lord. She realizes that is their only hope. And so she instructs Ruth on what to do, encouraging her to put on normal clothes, likely meaning that she is to put off the garments of mourning for her dead husband. It signaled that she is ready, give kind of an outward sign that she's ready to move on with her life. Naomi trusts in God's providence and in the character of Boaz that she is observed vicariously through Ruth, bringing home these bundles of grain day in and day out from working in his fields. But most importantly, what we see in Naomi is that her focus is no longer on herself. Instead, we're told that she is acting in the best interest here of Ruth. In the first chapter, Naomi was incredibly self-centered. She'd focused on all that she had lost, and all the ways that God had betrayed her confidence, and all that had been taken away from her, and what she could no longer have, what she could no longer look forward to, how empty, how bitter she was. But now she says, Ruth, let me, let me act in your best interest. Let the focus be be off of me for a minute and, and let me think about how I can protect and preserve you. And notice how Naomi's life has changed. You could almost picture her. You could almost picture the demeanor of her face changing, the activity that she participates in. You, you, can, you can almost see a pep in her step as she engages in these activities and her plans as she is spending herself now not wallowing in self-pity but living for the good of someone else. This is to be the hallmark of Christian living. Jesus told His disciples that the world will know that they are His disciples by their love for one another. Yet, sadly, we often act solely out of love for ourselves. Naomi had been self-centered in the first chapter, but now her primary concern is for Ruth and her well-being. And so may we likewise be a people who places the well-being of others above ourselves. However, as we continue to read the story, we see that this does not mean that Naomi gets left out in the cold. You know, we often think that if we don't look out for ourselves, that nobody else will. If Naomi suddenly flips the switch and she says, okay, now I'm going to look out for Ruth, well, okay, that's self-sacrificing. That means Naomi's going to get, uh, get shut out now. But look at what happens as the story unfolds. We see that both Ruth and Boaz also act in ways that are self-effacing, with others' best interest at heart. So that when Ruth returns to Naomi, Boaz has ensured that she returns with six more measures of grain for her and Naomi. So Naomi does not remain empty. So Naomi will too be blessed. And so what we see here is as we live and grow in a community with one another, when we practice hospitality, when we share our blessings with one another, we all will benefit. Nobody will be left out. We will all enjoy the blessings that come from dying to self and living for Christ and living for the good of others. Now I admit that this is risky. This is a risky way to live. Because we live in a cutthroat society where everyone seems to be looking out for their own interest. And so that means it is risky even in the church. Because let's say that, that, that Charles Wise decides to be 
self-sacrificing and and uh, serve others and place others above himself. But Mike Morris does not. See, you all in the back think you all escaped the examples, right? But uh, um, but uh, I'll, I'll get you. Um, but but if, if, if Mike and Charles are in a relationship with one another and, and Charles only gives, gives, and gives and Mike only takes, takes, and takes, well, Charles may get burned out. He may say, this isn't worth it. This is wearisome. When is this ever going to come back to me? And yes, that is the risk that we run. Yet Paul even anticipates this. He encourages us to not grow weary in doing good, but to continue to love and serve and give of ourselves in Galatians chapter 6. And even if Mike never reciprocates, even if he remains someone who only takes and takes, know that God sees. And God will reward those who live as they are called to live, as self-sacrificing individuals. Those who give of themselves for the good of others. That's how we are called to live. And if we all start to live that way, think of how much better it will be for all of us. We all benefit from that. And so let's think about how we can live for the good of others. We see the transformation that this makes, the, the results of this in not only Naomi's life, but in the life of Ruth and in the life of Boaz. When Naomi simply says, I'm going to live now for your good, to make sure that you are taken care of. We see all this falls into place because of her self-sacrificial serving. Ruth likewise demonstrates selflessness here, but beyond selflessness, she demonstrates obedience and humility. She willingly obeys Naomi's instructions, though she is not obligated to do so. She doesn't have to necessarily marry this man. But she does. She puts herself out there. She says, I will obey all that you say. She obeys the wise counsel of Naomi. She also humbles herself here before Boaz so that Boaz pronounces that she is a virtuous woman. Boaz pronounces a blessing on Ruth and he, he calls her virtuous. She says, he says, everyone in the town knows that you are a virtuous woman because of her humility. He references her kindness at first. He says, your, your kindness here at the end is better than your kindness at first. Your, your, your selfless humility in serving your mother-in-law and coming to make sure that Naomi is cared for and provided for. Everyone in the town has seen that and we marvel at your virtue. Ruth humbly puts herself into what could have been a very dangerous situation for her. But again, she acts in obedience and humility and faith, putting her virtuous character on full display. Boaz is likewise virtuous here. He demonstrates great compassion toward Ruth and Naomi. He cares for their material needs by providing them grain, but also for their social needs. Within the context of the society here in Israel, by saying, you will be redeemed. One way or the other, I will make sure of it. I will make it my mission to make sure that you are redeemed. He doesn't use his exalted status to shame Ruth or belittle her, to mock her. Ruth, you're, you're asking me to marry you? Do you know who I am? I own this. This is my land that you've been working in. 
You're a servant. You're a foreigner. Why would I want to marry someone like you? He doesn't do that. Instead, he elevates her to the status of an equal, although he is under no obligation to do so. In fact, whatever obligation he may have had to Ruth and to Naomi, we actually learn in this story that that, that obligation would have first fallen to someone else. He could have very easily washed his hands the whole mess of this and said, you know what, I've got no interest in this. This is too much. I don't have to help you all. I don't have to take you as my wife. Imagine what people will say about me if I marry this Moabite, this barren woman, this widow, this, this impoverished person. He could have said, why don't you go to Fred's threshing floor over there? He's your closer relative. Go ask him. But no, Boaz says, I will take care of this. I will make sure whatever happens, your redemption is covered. Furthermore, we see that Boaz here is honest. Even though he obviously desires this marriage with Ruth, he tells her of another nearer relative that would have first right at redemption. And so he puts his own happiness at risk for the sake of his integrity. His honesty is also displayed in his refusal to take advantage of Ruth here. She is obviously in a compromised position on the threshing floor at night, alone with a man. He could have easily taken advantage of her, but he is a man of integrity. At a time when men like Samson, like Jephthah, roamed the land, Boaz is a refreshing picture of righteousness. Men, today, we have far too many Samsons in the land and not enough Boazes. We have far too many self-servers and not enough selfless sacrificers. How would you behave if you could do whatever you wanted to do with no consequences? If no one would know if no one would find out, and even if someone found out, you could easily pin the blame on someone else. The situation that Boaz finds himself in here. Here's a woman at his feet in the middle of the night. How would you behave if you were to wake up and find yourself in that situation? What would you do? Boaz, thankfully, is a man of integrity, a man of honesty. And so we see here in these individuals' lives selflessness, hopefulness, obedience, humility, compassion, honesty. These character traits define the individuals in this story and they should define us as well. At a time when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, acting with integrity will serve as a signal to the world that you belong to Christ. That you bear His mark upon your life. That you're willing to stand against the tide of moral relativism that's pervading our society. If we are truly God's people, then we must act like Him in our dealings. Even when it would be easy to take advantage of a person or a situation for our own pleasure or benefit. Just as Bob talked about this morning in, in your work dealings. If you could get one over on someone in a business deal. Even if you knew you could get away with it. Maybe even if you've already gotten away with it. How do you act? 
Do you have integrity? Only a life that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ is capable of living in such a way. And so do we, brothers and sisters, do we live in this way? The second remarkable thing that we see in this passage is that God's people exercise bold faith in the face of risk. In going to Boaz in the middle of the night as she does, Ruth assumes a number of incredible risks. The chances of failure in this situation are astronomical. In fact, there is really no earthly reason why this mission should have succeeded. Demonstrating once again that God is front and center, working out His redemption for His people. Now we've already alluded to some of these things, but but let me just go through a rundown of all that could have gone wrong with this scene. Of all the different ways that this could have unfolded. Boaz, a wealthy landowner, could mock Ruth's request for marriage. Boaz could charge Ruth with perhaps failing in her family responsibilities and brand her as an adulteress and she's still technically considered to be Malin's wife. Boaz could have taken advantage of her alone in the dark, isolated from many witnesses. He could accuse her, perhaps even if he doesn't take advantage of her, he could accuse her of prostitution by somehow interpreting her actions as a sexual overture. He could shoo her away and humiliate her, since he is a virtuous man. Furthermore, the notion that this marriage would even be desirable to Boaz is nearly ridiculous. Ruth, again, was a foreigner. She was a Moabitess. At that, a people group excluded from joining the assembly of God's people. She was impoverished. She was widowed. And she was undoubtedly considered to be barren because she hadn't produced any offspring for Malin. And here she, a field hand, a servant, somebody that's gathering grain that's being dropped by Boaz's actual servants, she has the audacity to go and propose marriage to him, to Boaz, the wealthy landowner, the prominent citizen of Bethlehem. He was literally out of her league in his ethnic league, in his wealth league, in his status league, in every possible league, he was out of her league. There is no reason that this plan should have worked other than this was God's plan. And he would move mountains to accomplish his purpose. Just as he caused Sarah to conceive in her old age, just as he caused the Red Sea to part, just as he caused the walls of Jericho to fall down, he made Boaz's heart receptive to Ruth's proposal. As Christians today, we are similarly called to exercise bold faith. Now, we're not necessarily called to go and uncover a man's feet in the middle of the night at the threshing floor. As a matter of fact, young ladies, I would not recommend this as a way of procuring a husband. But we are called to exercise bold faith, even in the face of certain failure. Think about the very act of coming to faith in Christ. What, what more ridiculous thing is there than to cast our hopes, our lives, our eternal security, 
on the hope that the sovereign king of the universe would die for us. The notion itself is preposterous. There's no reason for him to do such a thing, to, to accept our humble plea of repentance, to accept our faith. And even that, we're told, is a gift from God himself, according to Ephesians 2.8. The act of coming to faith in Christ requires a faith that we do not naturally possess on our own. God has to give it to us. What a miraculous thing it is when any person comes to know the Lord. Beyond that, Jesus says that even if we possess a minuscule amount of faith, the size of a mustard seed, that we can move mountains, can do remarkable things. Why is that? It's because it's not because we somehow have incredible power within us. It's not that we can wield our faith like a magic wand. It's that the same God that fed His people with bread from heaven, the same God who shook the earth from Sinai, the same God that brought water from a rock, the same God that's working and active in our lives today. He will do all this and more for us if we will but have faith. Yet often our fear of failure overwhelms our faith. And so we do not have because we do not ask. We do not have the faith to ask. We cower, never taking any risks because we do not believe that our God is big enough to answer our prayers or accomplish His purposes. And I'm not talking about here jumping out of an airplane. That's risk enough, but risk that requires us to exercise faith in God. This is why we don't share the gospel, even though God commands us to do so. Because we don't actually believe that people will turn and repent and put their trust in Christ, as God says they will do. Because faith comes by hearing. The reason must be we don't believe that. We, we don't believe what God's Word says enough to actually act on it, to go out and do what He tells us to do. It's perhaps why we don't give more, because we trust in our bank account to provide, not God. It's why we don't gather our children round for family devotions and for discipleship, because we doubt the power of God's Word in their lives. It's why we don't adopt orphans and bring foster children into our homes, because we fear that their presence would be too disruptive in our lives. That's why we don't get involved in the lives of others in the church. Because we fear perhaps being rejected by them, or worse, or worse, actually getting to be known by them. Right? If the only thing worse than rejection is someone actually figuring out who we really are, we don't get involved in the lives of other people. Faith, though, faith calls us out of fear to live boldly for Christ, doing things that the world thinks is foolish for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. Ruth was willing to risk rejection, abuse, and ridicule. In a way, so too was Boaz. By taking this foreign, barren, impoverished widow to be his bride, he was risking everything that he had worked his entire life to build in this community. But faith looks beyond the risk to the reward. Are we living in faith or are we living in fear? good way to evaluate this in ourselves is to ask ourselves, 
What have you done this past week that has required you to utterly depend upon the Lord? Have you done anything in the past week that has required you to utterly depend upon the Lord? Or are you living a safe life? A life that doesn't require any actual faith. James says to demonstrate our faith through our works. What are we doing that demonstrates that we actually have bold faith in the Lord to do what He says in His Word? Are we exercising our faith boldly? Finally, in this passage, we see that God assures redemption for His people through His law. At the end of this chapter, Ruth is promised that she will be redeemed. Her request will be granted in one way or another, and Boaz himself will see to it. However, there's a process that must be followed to ensure that redemption takes place. We'll look at that a little bit later here in Ruth. It involves a sandal and public humiliation and all those weird types of things. But guess what? All that is prescribed in God's law. Because God's law is big enough to account for even this situation. God's law anticipates situations like Ruth's where people need to be redeemed. And His law ensures that it will take place. Ruth is appealing in this situation to the principle of the kinsman redeemer that God had established to ensure that His people would always be taken care of. Even if their husband died, even if they had no offspring, even if they were sold into slavery, even if they were murdered, this kinsman redeemer was to step up in each of those situations. And so Ruth is appealing to God's law. It's remarkable. She, a a Moabitess, is actually applying God's law to herself. She's appealing to Boaz, saying, Boaz, you enact this law on my behalf. A foreigner. A Moabite. She appeals to the law. And Boaz, in telling Ruth that there is a nearer kinsman, is making sure that the law is going to be strictly followed with all propriety. So that there could be no accusation made of him taking shortcuts in this situation. Nobody's going to be able to say, oh yeah, well Boaz, he just, you know, he was, he was interested in Ruth and so he just stepped out here and, and took her for his wife. No, he, he's making sure that the letter of the law is followed. That if somebody else has a right to claim her and a right to redeem her, that they are afforded that opportunity. Furthermore, we see in this other instances of law-keeping, Boaz seeks to avoid even the appearance of evil, even though there is no sexual misconduct that takes place here. He takes care to make sure that Ruth's reputation is preserved by telling her to, to get up and leave at dawn before anyone can recognize, telling her not to let anyone know that there's a woman here at the threshing floor. He preserves her reputation, but he also preserves her safety. You see, he he doesn't tell her, go on back home to Naomi, and there's good reason for that. Remember, we are in the time of Judges. In Judges chapter 19, there was a woman who was caught out after dark, and it did not go well for her. Boaz knows the society that he lives in. He knows that Ruth, as we saw in chapter 2, had already been somehow insulted in the fields by the working men. And so, 
He makes sure that she is taken care of. He doesn't send her away immediately, but tells her to wait until the dawn. And then he sends her home with ample food so that her and Naomi can be filled. It's because of this strict adherence to the law, though. It's because of Boaz's scruples to make sure that the law is followed that Ruth and Naomi can actually have assurance of redemption. It's the only reason they can actually be reasonably sure that he's going to follow through. We see at the end of this story, Naomi tells Ruth, you just sit still and and wait because he's going to take care of his business here. You wait and see what he does. He won't let this matter go because she knows that he's going to follow the law. Now this, I think, this understanding of God assuring redemption through the Old Testament laws is contrary to what many people think about the Old Testament law. Most people believe that the law was an onerous burden that oppressed God's people. And indeed, it was impossible for any human to keep it fully. But that does not mean it was not good. God's law was good. Go back and read Psalm 119. It is a a lengthy poem that's dedicated to God's law, to its goodness. If God's people had actually followed God's law as He intended, then stories like the redemption of Ruth would have been commonplace in Israel. This is what should have been the norm. We're given a glimpse here in the middle of the Old Testament, in the middle of all the debauchery and corruption that's taking place in the time of Judges, we're we're, we're shown, here's what it should have looked like. Here's what adherence to the law actually produces. But instead, what we read about in Judges was common, was the norm. People doing what was right in their own eyes. And so stories like Ruth's proved to be the exception. But folks, look at how good and glorious this is. This book, it it captivates our hearts because it is good. It's not the romance of the story. It's the fact that these people are behaving righteously toward one another and before God. They're doing what the law expects of them. Look at how God provides for His people abundantly, more than they should ever expect, through the law. And this is no drudgery for Boaz. He finds inexpressible joy and delight at the prospect of a marriage to Ruth. Ruth will herself be ingratiated into the covenant community through the stipulations of the law. When God's law is kept, His people flourish and prosper. It is there for their good and for ours. Because you see, just as Ruth was assured redemption through the keeping of the law, it is only by the keeping of the law that we can be assured of redemption. Let me say that again because that's going to sound weird. It is only by the keeping of the law that we can be assured of redemption. But it is not in our keeping of the law that we are assured redemption. But Christ's. It's in His keeping of the law that we can be assured of redemption. Jesus said in Matthew 5.17 that He had not come to abolish the law. It says, heaven and earth will pass away. My law will not pass away. But I've come to fulfill it. I've come to keep it for you. Because you can't. This is the good news of Christ's advent. That He has come 
to do what we could not do to keep the law perfectly. See, God's law is no less binding. The difference is today that Christ has already fulfilled it for us. He's already maintained all the stipulations. Keeping the Sabbath, yeah, He did that. We don't have to. Not murdering, not lusting, not hating your brother. He did that for us. He has fulfilled it. He has satisfied it. It's through His active obedience, His keeping of the law, His bestowing of that righteousness onto us that we can be forgiven for breaking the law. That's what we just sang earlier, not in me. Through, through Christ's life, through His righteousness, I can have life. The law did not simply just poof out of existence, out of effectiveness. No, its demands have simply been satisfied in Christ Jesus. So therefore, just as Naomi instructed Ruth to trust in Boaz's actions to fulfill the law, so too we must trust, trust in Christ's fulfilling the law for us. There is nothing that Ruth could do to redeem herself. And there is nothing that we can do to redeem ourselves. Because we can't keep the law. We've already broken it a million times over. The only thing we can do is to boldly and in faith cast our case before Christ. Lay our cause at His feet and plead His blood on our lives. Trusting in His perfect work to satisfy the law's demands and to purchase the redemption that we so desperately need. See, we too are foreigners. We too are alienated from the commonwealth of Christ. We are destitute. We are barren of any ability to produce righteousness within ourselves. It's only by the compassion of Christ that we are redeemed. This is the story of Ruth 3. The redemption that's assured by the law. By keeping the law. When the law is kept, redemption is purchased. Jesus has kept the law for us that we could not keep so He could purchase our redemption. If you have not yet trusted in His keeping of the law on our behalf, in His accomplishing for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves, then let us cast ourselves on His tender mercy. Stop thinking that maybe I'll be good enough. No, you won't. You're not and you never will be. But He is. He has kept the law for us so that He can redeem us. If we have trusted, if we have cast ourselves on His tender mercy, then let us continue to exhibit godly character as people of God. And let us live in bold faithfulness, trusting that our reward far outweighs any risk that we might encounter along the way. Let's pray together. Lord, tonight we once again... Bring our case before You. We confess, Lord, our poverty of spirit. We confess, Lord, that we at one time were Your enemies separated from You, foreign, alienated. We confess, O oh God, that our sin has broken every one of Your commands. 
And yet, O Lord, it is not ultimately our ability to keep Your commands that we must look to, but Christ's. And so, Lord, we thank You tonight. We praise You for Christ's active obedience, for His keeping of the law that we could not keep, for His fulfilling of that which had never been met. We see just a a small, a brief picture here of what it looks like when people actually keep Your Word and follow Your law, how it can result in such good for their lives. Lord, we know that all the sin and shame and brokenness in this world is a result of people failing to keep Your law. People failing to adhere to Your Word. And so I pray, Lord, that You would conform our lives to Your Word so that we might live in accordance to it. So that we might live as people who have been transformed by it. So that we might honor You, our Father. Lord, help us to live in bold faith. Knowing that You are a God of the miraculous that You do not cease to do wonders. In bringing even one sinner to repentance, Lord, You perform a miracle equal to creation of all that is. Because You have brought a soul from death to life and clothed them in the righteousness of Christ. Lord, let us not take that righteousness for granted. May we walk in it daily. May we honor you as we do so. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.